Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and we're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Gospel according to St. John. We've been following St. John's Gospel now, and it's chapter 14, verses 15 to 21. In a way, it's, it's a, a very powerful gospel. In another way, it's kind of a difficult one to understand. And it's one of those that if we simply read the scripture, if we simply read John's gospel, we'll be left with, with um, <clears throat> all sorts of basic ideas that... Uh, may or may not be legitimate. But this is, the, this is a case, too, where we interpret this gospel according to the mind of the church. And this is one of the great debates within Christian society. Do we need guidance in the interpretation of sacred scripture, or are we individually inspired by the Holy Spirit to read it and understand it? Um, this was a great issue, of course, in the, in the Protestant Reformation. The reformers said that certainly it, each person is filled with the Holy Spirit, each person inspired by the Holy Spirit has the ability to read and to understand the scriptures. Unfortunately, we kind of tend to get into that sometimes ourselves too. It's one of the dangers of Bible studies. Um, there's tremendous value in Bible studies, but they can be misused as well because we can take our own private interpretations and come up with something contrary to the intention of the scriptures. Part of this is now to remember also, especially now with the New Testament, well, with the whole Bible, that in the New Testament, the church wrote the New Testament. It is its book. The uh, the. Apostles, the evangelists, were members of the Christian community. They were members of the church. They were, they were um, the presiders. They were the episcopoi, um, or they were the presbyters. They were the ones, basically, who, in the hierarchical structure of the church, recounted what they had heard for the sake of, from Jesus for the sake of the faithful in order that their faith might be deepened and increased. It's the same way with the letters of St. Paul and uh, certainly of the Catholic, what we call the Catholic epistles at the end, and the book of Revelation, which comes from, from, the, uh, from the Apostle John. These were all written and came to be from within the church. It's therefore not a tool to use to critique or to criticize the church, but it does mean that for us as Catholics, that what we do is we use the reflection, we use the mind of the church in the whole process of interpreting the New Testament and the whole scriptures actually, because the book itself belongs to the church. And the church allows us to share its understanding of the book. And so for us to go off on our own um, and say, well, you know, the church says this, but scripture says, that, you know, scripture says this. Well, chances are if the church says one thing, the scripture doesn't say something else. They might say it in a different way. They might say it in a more obscure way. But it's never going to be a direct contradiction between the scripture and the faith of the church. 
Now, this is a gospel where we especially need to move into the mind of the church, into the faith of the church, because this gospel talks about the Holy Trinity, and it talks about the Holy Trinity in relationship to ourselves. And so it kind of is a story also about many things. One of them is the goal of human life, the goal of human existence. The other one is the presence of the fullness of that meaning of human existence in the present age, which we call realized eschatology. And it also then outlines for us and helps us to understand how it is that we live this life, this life which we share with God. So it's, it's, a, it's a very important gospel, and it's a very full gospel, but it's a gospel that can be easily overlooked because, first of all, the word love is used in it um, frequently, and we know the problems that that word has within our modern vocabulary, our modern language, at least in the English language. And, uh, and it also then talks about relationality. And we all know, once again, how difficult human interrelationality, human relationality is, and, uh, and the, uh, the struggle and the precariousness of human relationships. So we know all of these kind of uh, uh, fragile kinds of ideas and fragile kinds of uh, vocabulary. And yet from that, we are to get something very solid, something very secure, something very sure and convincing about our own lives. So let's look then and see what it is that this gospel is saying. Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right away, we have now a beginning of the introduction to the meaning of the word love. That love is not just a matter of the heart or the mind or the emotions. Love has to do with the concrete world in which we live. It has to do with the whole person and not just some kind of interior or one dimension of our physicality. It has to do with our personhood. For our personhood, our persons are the ones who hear and who follow the commands of the Lord. And Jesus is now defining that as a very essential dimension of love. Then he says, I shall ask my Father, and this is if you love me and keep my commandments, in other words, if you love me, is sufficient to say that, but then he has to tell us exactly kind of what he means by that in this case. I shall ask my Father and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth, whom the world can never receive. He says he will give to us another advocate. Well, the reason for him saying that is because he himself is the Father's first advocate to us. And so the Spirit is the second advocate. And that he will give us the Spirit of Truth. That means that something about love has something also to do about truth. And I know, once again, in our society, not only does love have very many, very many um, different kinds of, of meaning, some positive, some negative, but um, so does truth. And so we hear this very popular thing now, well, my truth is, and um, well, you know, the only, there is truth. 
And if you share that, then it is your truth. But if you're doing, making it up all by yourself, independent of the existence of truth itself, then it's not true. Then it's some kind of self-deception, it's some kind of self-manipulation, it's some kind of self-aggrandizement. And so, it's in, so Jesus says, now you're going to get another advocate, the one who's going to give you the truth. And, uh, but he said, the world doesn't know the truth since it neither sees nor knows him. But you know him because he is with you and he is in you. Now, what does that mean? That the world does not know the truth. There is only one truth. And that truth is Jesus says himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is only one truth, and that is God's existence and his love for us. The other truth, again, is our existence from the hand of God, because he is the Lord. And so it is the font of all truth. What, the truth has to be anchored in a reality, not in some kind of ideology, not in some kind of mental um, journeys, mental fantasies. The truth, like love, must be concretized in ourselves as person. The truth must be concretized also in the reality of what lies at the very basic existence of the universe. And that happens to be the Lord. That happens to be God. And so he said, the world doesn't recognize. The world, this in using the world in the sense of the secular world. Um, but he said, but you know him. And uh, because he is with you and he is in you. Well, uh, how do we know him? And the world doesn't know him. We're in the world. How come we don't know him then? Or how can we do? And, and the world doesn't. And Jesus says, because it comes, the truth comes to you in the spirit. And we have received the spirit. This is in the, in the mind and the ongoing understanding of the church. This certainly is the sacramentality of our relationship with the Spirit, which is, starts at baptism, is reinforced in, in the Eucharist, and which is firmly defined in confirmation. So we know that confirmation is not just an, an outward sign, the confirmation is as, as a sacrament contains the presence of the living God and is part becomes part of who we are when we receive it. Which is why you can't say, <clears throat> I, I therefore uh, want to renounce my baptism. Well, you can renounce your baptism all you want. You're still baptized. You can renounce your confirmation all you want. You're still confirmed. And uh, you can renounce your faith in the body and the blood of the Lord, but it's still the body and the blood of the Lord. Jesus is not talking about how we feel about it, how we think about it. He's talking about the truth and the reality. If we have the presence of the Lord, the presence of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit within us, we can still sin. We can still turn away and reject but that doesn't change that fundamental relationship. And as a matter of fact, it calls us constantly to account to the Lord for the gifts that we have been given. And then he says, now I personally am here concretely in front of you. 
This is not this is not an interior relationship that we have with each other right now. This is very concrete. I can reach out and touch you. You can reach out and touch me. He said, so because of this bond, I'm not going to leave you orphans. I will come back to you. But in a short time, the world will no longer see me. In a short time, I am going to leave for a short time when you will not see me. You will not see me walking down the street. You will not see me, you know, preaching on the mountain. You will not see me preaching in the synagogue. You will not see me healing. Um, but believe me, you're not orphans. I haven't abandoned you. You just simply don't see me for a while. But you will see me because I live and you will live. And he said, you are going to see me because I am life itself. I am alive. And, and, and so are you. And on that day, when you see me again, you will understand that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Now this is really dramatic. Because what this gospel does it affirms the existence of the Holy Trinity. But now it involves us in the Trinitarian dynamic of the divine. And this is at the root and this is at the foundation of all believing Christian life. The idea that we are taken into the person of the Christ who is in the Father and the Spirit is in him. In other words, we are drawn in to be participants in the relationality of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, which causes the Father, the Son, and the Spirit to be one because of the intensity of their relational love for each other, and therefore draws us into that, doing what the Eastern Church calls, and what many of the early fathers call, the divinization of the human person. That doesn't mean that as I walk around on this earth with great opinion of myself that I really am divine and you should listen to me. It means that this is our destiny. This is where we're headed. And Jesus is talking to us about how we get there. We get there by concretely loving him, which means obeying him. We, we get there we get there because the spirit is in us in the spirit of truth and therefore we know the truth we 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 share the life of christ on earth on that day you will understand that i am in the father and you in me and i in you now this is something saint elizabeth of the trinity um, has wonderful things to say. She had great devotion to the Trinity. She has wonderful things to say about the meaning of this relationship, the meaning of being in one another. And I think that sometimes, you know, we get this, we get this idea of kind of a radical individuality, very much a part of the modernist movement and uh, very much, very much a part of certainly the secular society. And... Uh, and, and this basically is uh, somehow that we are, you know, we are, we are radically individualized and that we, we do not, we, we are not, therefore, sharers of our existence with someone else. This is one of the reasons, certainly in the Old Testament, that uh, that marriage becomes such an important uh, an important image for the understanding the covenant. Um, remember in the uh, 
in the prophets in the life of the prophet Hosea. Hosea orders, or the Lord orders Hosea to go out and marry a prostitute, and uh, and says so that Israel can look at you and see what they are like in relationship to me. They can see their own sinfulness, and you name each child therefore as something that uh, that exposes the sin of Israel. Um, it is it is uh, a powerful powerful imagery. We find also in the book of Genesis the idea of, you know, the, uh, the idea of marriage as being actually real marriage, being the uh, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, um, being, you know, the two become one. All of this idea, humanity has to be able to experience its capacity to become part of somebody else. And that marriage, is the human instrument initiated by the Lord for us to experience that capacity to receive into ourselves the lives of another, the life of another. We know that that life of love is transformative. We know that a married couple who, who has authentically married and lived out their lives together they, they, they share much more of themselves than, than anyone else does. They are in each other, having both in all ways, physically, emotionally, psychologically, and so forth, that they become intermingled with the other person, not losing their identity, not losing their singularity, but at the same time sharing their life to such an intense degree that they are part of someone else and someone else is part of them. When Jesus says, you know, that because I live and you will live, because I'm in my Father and you in me and I in you, we have to, we have to realize that it is in the opening of up of ourselves to the loving God and the giving away of ourselves to that living God, that we become united with the Son, and in so doing, share his destiny, his predestination um, to eternal life within the Father and the Spirit. And, and we, can, we can say, well, all this is theoretical, all this is hypothetical, but that's why the church and why the scriptures makes concrete as humanly as possible the notion of becoming part of somebody else and that's you know and 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 that's what the church's objection to divorces what jesus's objection to divorces you shatter the concept of the covenant when when that happens um you know, and which is why the church and annulments will try to say, you know, well, that covenant never actually existed in the Lord. And, uh, and so, you know, you're free to form that kind of covenant with someone whose life you can become a part of and who can become a part of your life. It's, it's something that we have to pray about and it's something that we have to think about. But you know... This is what eternal life is all about. We get these images, you know, of a kind of a great lawn fate in heaven where you, you know, spend time 
running into old friends and neighbors and family members and enjoying their company and all this kind of thing. Um, maybe that's the best we can do with our imagination. But deep down inside of ourselves, it's something more deep than that. It's something deeper than that, something more profound than that. For if we are in Jesus, then so are those with whom we share eternal life in Jesus. And so we do know each other, but we know each other as a part of the whole. We know each other then as they were destined to be for all eternity, in the fullness and completeness of their personhood, in this eternal love that the Lord has for us and us for him, and he for the Father, and the Father for him, and therefore the Father for us, and us for the Father, and with him and the Spirit, and therefore us in the Spirit, and the Spirit in him, and the Spirit in us. There is this, this without the loss of our personhood, become part of somebody else. In a good marriage, do you say, and, and this couple has, has interpenetrated each other's lives in every way, and you say, oh, well, you know, now they're less a person because they're so-and-so's husband or so-and-so's wife. Um, what you find out usually is that they're more of a person than they would have been had that relationship never happened. That it is this giving away. Jesus says this himself. Anyone, you know, who loses his life for my sake saves it, and who saves his life loses it. In other words, the one who resists this kind of vulnerability to another loses their life. They be, end up being less than they're supposed to be, less than they could be. Yet the one who basically gives their lives away for, for the sake of the other person ultimately becomes more of a person themselves, more whole, more complete. All of those kinds of things. Think about this in the relationships that you know of people who have been successful in finding ways to live this kind of life with each other. And what you begin to understand then is that they are more than they were before, although they have given enormous amounts of themselves away to the other. That's the thing that Jesus is talking about. He's giving himself to us in order that he himself is able to receive us into himself. And as such, therefore, fulfills his mission, which is to bring humanity into the eternal dynamic of the Trinity. And that the Trinity, in their relationship with each other, have a love so intense that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit become then, in a sense, one God. And so we too, in being drawn in the intensity into the relationship of the love God has for us, we become, in a sense, divinized as in our personhood and share within the life of the second person of the Blessed Trinity the life of the third person and the first person and the lives of those whom we have shared this earth with as well. That there is then, it's not like Buddhism at all, where you kind of get reabsorbed into the Brahman or like the drop of water that is reabsorbed into the ocean or anything like that. It's not what we think. That's not what Jesus says. With Jesus, we, we, stay in, we stay persons. We stay who we are. Jesus does not lose his identity because he is one with the Father. The Spirit does not lose his identity because he is one with the Son. 
the father does not lose his identity because he is one with the son and one with the spirit. He, it, the, the, love does not destroy identity. It strengthens personhood and it strengthens the quality within persons that enable them to reach the fullness of their human potential. And so Jesus then goes on to say, anybody who receives my commandments and keeps them will be one who loves me. Once again, if in fact you live your life for the other, you will then have the entree into the personhood of the other and he into you. And anybody who loves me will be loved by my father and I shall love him and show myself to him. Anybody who loves me will be loved by my Father because the Father and I are one. And so what the Father does, I do, and vice versa. And I shall love him and show myself to him. Does the Lord show himself to us? He does. How does he show himself to us? He shows himself to us in word. He shows himself to us in sacrament. He shows himself to us in the grace we receive in our lives. He shows himself to us in the goodness we perceive in others. He shows himself to us in the goodness we perceive within ourselves or experience within ourselves. So what this gospel then essentially is doing, what this gospel is doing is it is explaining to us in a way what the Trinity is and at the same time explaining to us what our role in that Trinity is. The Trinity is not some kind of abstract concept that you know theologians can ponder. The Trinity is actually the dynamic of the presence of God in the midst of the world, and it is God himself in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, desiring and drawing us into the sharing of that relationship as well. And so the Trinity is not an abstraction, it is the explanation of the purpose of our lives, the meaning of our destiny, and the meaning of eternal life and salvation. That's what the Trinity is for us, and that's what the Trinity does for us. And, and, and I think that uh, we ourselves would do well to take this gospel, to read it over carefully, to read it over thoroughly, to pray over it, and to try and understand this mysterious dimension of reality, which is more true than any other aspect of reality, and yet and available to us only through the gift of the Spirit, which we receive from the Father, who gives us the Spirit as the second advocate, the second paraclete, in order to draw us into the life of the Son who shares his life with the Father. And in sharing his life with the Father, as he says, his Father, anyone who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and show myself to him. I will show myself to him in all the ways we just mentioned. But the object and the, and the final goal of that is to be drawn into the life of another person, into the life of the Son, in order that we might share the divinization that the Lord promised us at creation and do that and live that in the joy and in the bond of Trinitarian love for all eternity, for the, for the entire unending moment of our life with the Lord.
Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Who better?